R.C. Sproul, who is one of the preeminent Reformed theologians of our time, wrote an article a few years back in which he lamented a growing trend which he observed in Protestant churches in recent generations. Now, the, the Protestant faith was born out of the theological controversies of the 16th century, known as the Reformation. The chief issue which divided the Roman Catholic Church from the Protestant reformers was the question of justification. The question of how a sinner could be made right, that is justified, in the sight of a just and holy God. The Roman Catholic Church contended, as they had for a millennia and still do today, that sinners are justified before a holy God by a mixture of faith and their own works of merit. The reformers, on the other hand, contended that sinners were justified before God sola fide, which is Latin for by faith alone, apart from works of any kind. They believe that the Bible uniformly teaches us from Genesis all the way to Revelation that sinners cannot produce within themselves the righteousness which God requires for acceptance into His holy presence. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Therefore, the only recourse which sinners like us have is to receive a righteousness from God which is given freely by His grace received through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They believed that justification by faith was the essence of the gospel and that without it, there is no salvation. And they were right. Now while the issue of justification by faith alone, was decisively settled for Protestants, at least in theory, in the 16th century, the popular conception of justification in Western culture continued to be this mixture of faith and works. And that prevailing doctrine continues to hold sway in many churches and among many professing Christians today. That is, if you believe in God and your good deeds generally outweigh your bad deeds when placed upon the scales of justice, then you will be granted access into everlasting life in heaven. Now, evangelicals have their own version of this view which typically goes like this. If you at any time in your life have asked Jesus into your heart and if you have generally stayed away from the really, really bad sins, then you have nothing to worry about. You will pass easily through the judgment to come. But, Dr. Sproul observes, there is increasingly to be found another view of justification that's taking an even firmer root in our culture at large, and lamentably, even among Protestant churches who ought to know better. In fact, according to Sproul, this other view of justification is, quote, even more insidious in its subtlety and thus more pervasive. It is the cultural view of justification that is now held dominantly in the West. It's not justification by works. It's not even justification by a mixture of faith and works. Rather, it is justification by death. Sproul writes, It is an implicit universalism that assumes everyone goes to heaven when he or she dies. Now, perhaps maybe the most rank evildoers such as Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, maybe they won't make it, but the average person certainly has nothing to worry about. Nothing transforms sinners into valorous saints 
more miraculously or frequently than death. Go to the funeral of the most wicked sinner you know and you will hear a eulogy that guarantees that person's entrance into the kingdom of God, end quote. And I would tell you that my own experience as a pastor confirms this observation. Not infrequently am I asked by a funeral home to come and to perform a a service by someone who had no involvement in a local church and therefore had no relationship with a local church pastor, but at the day of their death, they, they, their family at least wants them to have a pastor preside over their funeral and to hear the family conjecture as to the blissful state of the departed. It happens over and over and over again. Justification by death is indeed the prevailing view of American culture. Now, Dr. Sproul concludes that there are two factors driving this, this dangerous doctrine of justification by death. First, He says, most people operate with a mistaken conception of the character of God. That is, they imagine a God who is not holy. A God who possesses unconditional love for every person. Therefore, since God's love is thought to be unconditional, then there must be no conditions which the sinner must meet, namely repentance and faith, in order to receive eternal life. The second factor driving the doctrine of justification by death is a widespread neglect or outright denial in some quarters of the doctrine of eternal punishment. In other words, we cannot imagine any of our loved ones suffering eternally in hell, let alone the thought of ourselves suffering eternal punishment in hell. We, we can't fathom ourselves or someone we loved ever being consigned to such an awful place of never-ending torment. Therefore, our minds naturally find ways to believe that everyone, even the most wretched scoundrels among us, possess some redeeming qualities that will evoke God's mercy on the day of judgment. One of the reasons the doctrine of justification by death has taken such firm root in our culture and even in our churches is because passages like the one we come to today are rarely, if ever, preached. Revelation 14, as I've said, contains the most terrifying images of final judgment and eternal punishment found anywhere in Scripture. But preach it, we must. And believe it, we must. We need to take a long Hard look at this description of hell, not only because denying hell's existence is of no profit to anyone, but also because according to this passage, staring down into the lake of fire, feeling its heat upon our faces, hearing the tormented screams of the damned, smelling the smoke of their suffering arising as it were, has a sanctifying effect on the saints. It produces fear, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Look at 14.12. Notice the connection between verses 11 and 12. The smoke of their torment rises day and night forever and ever. And they have no rest, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Where? In the description of hell. Before I proceed through this message then, let me issue you a warning. It will be tempting for you to tune me out because your ears are used to far more pleasant messages. You've been listening to them all week. But don't do it. Do not tune me out because of the topic this morning, because it is unpleasant to the ears and unpalatable to the taste. To do so 
to go on and ignore that this text exists in the Bible would be suicide for your soul. And I don't want you to die. You need this message. God breathed out this text and included it in his word according, verse 12, according to verse 12, to produce in you the perseverance and the holiness without which no one will make it to heaven. So walk with me. Walk with me through these three angelic messages of judgment and hear in them the call for your endurance. The call for your faith in Jesus. The call for the obedience of your faith such that you keep the commandments of God. Because one of the ways that the Bible causes the elect to persevere in faith is by warning you of what will happen if you don't. So hear the warning. Heed the warning. And be the recipient this morning of God's preserving grace for your soul. This is the vehicle of God's grace to you this morning. Do not tune it out. Be wise and be warned, and in so doing, be saved. So let's move through these three angelic announcements of judgment in verses 6 through 11. This passage contains the sixth vision in the third vision cycle known as the seven symbolic histories, which span Revelation 12 to 14. And in this sixth history... These three angelic messengers announce three messages of judgment. We're going to examine each one in turn. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the first angelic messenger announces an eternal gospel to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people on the earth. And I hear in these verses an echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 14. That Olivet Discourse dealing with the remainder of this age and the end of his, this age and of his return at the end of this age when he's told his disciples this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. In that section of Matthew 24, Jesus warned his disciples of the tribulation of this age, of death, At the hands of the nations, he warned them of false prophets that would arise to deceive many and lead many astray. And he called for their perseverance by telling them that it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. All of that is in Matthew 24. In other words, exactly the same content of what we've been studying in Revelation 12 to 14. They're talking about the same thing. Matthew 24, Revelation 12 to 14. They're identical. And so throughout this age, what the first angel tells us, what Jesus told us on the Mount of Olives is that the gospel will be preached throughout the earth until it has finally been proclaimed in every nation under the sun. Then the end will come. And indeed, when John sees the angel fly overhead, Proclaiming an eternal gospel to all those who dwell on the earth, he announces that the hour of God's judgment has come. And therefore, all people everywhere should fear God and give him glory and worship him as their creator. So what John sees in this first angelic messenger is a symbol of the church in this age. In its mission and task to take the eternal gospel to every tribe, tongue, people and nation on the face of the earth, everyone who dwells upon the earth. But listen, the mission of the church will one day come 
to an end. There will come a day when God will declare this world evangelized. And that day is coming soon. And when the world is, in God's view, evangelized, Christ will return and the end will come, the hour of judgment. And at that time, the opportunity for repentance will be passed. So if there's any unbeliever in our midst, and undoubtedly there are, you should take from this first angelic message of judgment that today is a day of grace. Today is the day of the proclamation of the gospel here in this church and among the nations. But there is coming soon a day in which that day of grace will be ended and the day of wrath will have come. So repent. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. The night is coming. The night of God's wrath when repentance will no longer be possible. So fear God and give Him glory as the angel commands. Give Him glory and worship Him as your Creator and your Lord. Lay down the arms of your rebellion and surrender to Him who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent while it is still the day of grace. For the night of God's wrath is coming, the hour of judgment is near, and when it arrives, it will be for you everlastingly too late. Repent. Be reconciled to God. Today, He will receive you in grace. Tomorrow, the gates of heaven will be shut. Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So there's a progression in these messages of judgment. The first messenger declared that the hour of judgment was at hand, it was imminent, But evidently it had not yet arrived because the opportunity for repentance still existed. The second messenger speaks in the midst of the day of wrath. And his job is simply to proclaim that Babylon, the world city, is done. It has fallen before the coming of the Lord. Babylon is not a geographic location. You cannot find it on a map. It is a symbol. It stands as the emblematic world city. It is the capital of Satan's kingdom where the God of this world has his throne, where the beast reigns over the nations. It is, according to Revelation 17 and 18, the haunt of demons, the place of perversion, of idolatry, of immorality, of luxuriant materialism. It is the place where men first tried to make a name for themselves by building a tower to the heavens. It has been Egypt, it has been Persia, it has been Greece, it has been Rome, it is Washington, it is New York, it is Hollywood, it is Beijing, it is Moscow, it is London. In in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it was Vanity Fair. It is the city of man, the capital city of the kingdom of this world. And it has intoxicated all of the nations with its powerful tonic of immorality and idolatry and wealth. And it will fall at the coming of Christ. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 18, when judgment is being poured out upon Babylon, you're going to hear the angels call to the people of Zion saying, come out, come out from her, for the hour of her judgment has come. And so you should take this second angelic message and you should hear in it a call to come out from among her and be separate. 
don't establish your citizenship in Babylon. Don't drink from the wine of the cup of her immoralities and her passions and her luxury and her idolatry and her death. Don't do it. Come out from among her and be separate, saith the Lord. The third angelic messenger describes the fate of those who succumb to the beast and who drink of Babylon's intoxicating wine. Verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and with sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. I think it was Whitfield who said, Pastors should never preach on hell without tears in their eyes. And I don't know if they'll come today, but I've prayed to feel this. I prayed that for me and I prayed that for you. You've heard messages on hell before. You've kept it out there and it has had absolutely no effect upon your life. Don't let that happen. You pray with me now in the next 15 minutes as we delve into the doctrine of hell that you would feel it. That you may flee from the wrath to come. So here we are. John's first vision of hell and the eternal punishment of the wicked and of the unbelieving who do not fear God and give him glory and worship as the angel commanded in verse 7. This is a terrifying, it is a disturbing section of scripture and God means it to be. Be disturbed. We must push through, force ourselves to look upon it, to feel its horror if we are to receive any benefit from it this morning. So I want to just pause over it. I want to give you four truths concerning hell and the final judgment, which I pray you will give your fervent attention to this morning. Four truths concerning hell. Number one, hell is just. It is right, it is fair, and it is good for God to unleash his eternal wrath upon those who worship the beast and its image and receive the mark of its name. It is a fitting punishment for the crime. I think that's the point of the parallel images in verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8, those who drink of the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. Chapter 17, she's, Babylon's going to be pictured as a prostitute with a golden cup filled with immorality in her hands. Those who drink of that cup, according to verse 10, will then drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's an eye for an eye, principle of justice. Those who are intoxicated by the world's godless sensuality and immorality and materialism and idolatry, not to mention the blood of the saints, which is also in her cup. Chapter 17, verse 6. Those who drink from her cup will one day find themselves made to drink of a much stronger cup, which is the 100% fermented wrath of God which will result in a drunken stupor from which they will never awake. But is it just? Is it right? Is it holy and good for God to punish so severely, so everlastingly, the temporal sins of mortal beings? That's the question I want to ask. I'm going to give you a few thoughts to consider. Number one, the entirety of the Bible, but especially the Lord Jesus Christ himself, affirm the justice of God and everlasting punishment. So surely we can admit 
that the Son of God has a better handle on what is just and right and fair and good than we do, right? The Son of God is in a better position to know and declare what is just and right and good. And He clearly taught the doctrine of eternal punishment. So if you are going to say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not good, you put yourself on the other side of the aisle from Christ. I don't think you want to be in that position. Second, the severity of a crime, and therefore the severity of the punishment required by justice, is determined by the inherent value of the being against whom the crime was committed. Let me run that by you again. The severity of a crime, and therefore the severity of the punishment required by justice, is determined by the inherent value of the person against whom the crime was committed. That is why poaching a deer... Merits a monetary fine, maybe the loss of your hunting license, six months in jail, but probably not all three. While the shooting of a human being merits the penalty of death. It's the inherent value of the creature against whom the crime is committed. What then is the fitting punishment for trampling the glory of God? What what is... The just penalty for cosmic treason. If the United States government executes those who commit treason against our nation, what is the fitting penalty for those who commit treason against God's everlasting kingdom? Is not infinite wrath the just penalty for sinning against an infinitely holy and valuable creator? Is not eternal punishment the just and fitting response to sinning against the eternal God? Third thing to consider. Perhaps we have an inflated view of our own goodness. Today, we look at people, at pagans, at unbelievers... And we find in them many good and admirable and praiseworthy qualities that tend to make the thought of eternal punishment seem too severe and unfitting a penalty. Like many of you, I've spent almost every night this last week sitting in awe of Olympic athletes who put in eight hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to put themselves in a freakish athletic condition to enable them to be able to do things that a handful of people on earth can do. And we, we look at them literally up upon a pedestal and it's hard for us to imagine them standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And being sentenced to Revelation 14, 11. It's hard. It doesn't seem to fit. But what if, and, and I'm not just talking about Olympic athletes. I mean, you, you know unbelievers. You have unbelieving friends and family and spouses and children. And, and they're nice people. They're kind people. They're smart people. But what if all of the good that we find resident in the unbeliever, every bit of it, is merely the result of God's common grace poured out upon all mankind? What if the goodness that we find even in unbelieving peoples is merely the portion of His image that remains even though distorted and disfigured after the fall? What if they're just broken mirrors of His glory, and even in their brokenness, they project beauty? Take away the glory, they're just broken mirrors. 
What if the effect of the fall of man is such that there really is nothing good in us that is in our flesh, as the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 7.18? What if when all is said and done and all men stand before God in judgment and then every good grace is removed and we see man for the hideously evil and depraved creature that he is. I have every faith that eternal wrath will be seen as the only fitting punishment on that day. Just and right and fair and good. New Testament scholar Vern Poitras writes about that in this way. I want you to listen. This is a good quote. He says, During the present age, we love and admire many things about pagans because even in their rebellion, they display many admirable reflections of God's goodness. Our admiration may be proper now, but that will change when we see undiluted wickedness in all its ugliness and hideousness. The second coming brings about a separation between good and evil. And this means not only a separation between good people and evil people, but a separation between good and evil within people. And therefore, within evil people, evil will come to its full fruition. Goodness will remain only with God and those who enjoy His gracious blessing. It is hard for us to picture just how bad evil may actually become. He continues, we must let God be God. He knows what he is doing when he displays mercy. And he knows what he is doing when he displays justice. We must therefore take the teaching and revelation seriously. We must reckon with the fact that God is indeed a God of justice and of punishment for evil. And only by repenting and turning to Christ can one escape from hell. End quote. On the day of judgment, when every good grace is stripped away from every person apart from Christ, you will see the most hideously evil creature your mind ever imagined. Someone who, if they had opportunity, would drag the God of the universe down from his throne and put him to death. How do I know? Because when the Son of God left His throne and came down to dwell among Him, that's exactly what they did. Second truth concerning hell. Hell is conscious torment. It's a frightening word that appears twice in this passage. Tormented, verse 10. Torment, verse 11. I don't know exactly what form hell will take. This is... A book filled with apocalyptic imagery. And so it's not surprising that we find a description of hell as a lake of fire and sulfur which burns forever but never consumes. That doesn't surprise me. It's it's a symbol. It's an image. But before you breathe a sigh of relief, let me tell you that images and symbols always have a referent in reality or else they mean nothing. And the reality to which this image points is an everlasting prison of suffering, physical, psychological, and spiritual torment forever. So this passage teaches us for certain that the evil, unbelieving dead will one day be raised and judged and condemned to an eternal state of tortured restlessness. Third, hell is eternal. The torment will never end. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Chapter 20 and verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a description of eternal, ceaseless, restless torment. It is never ending suffering. It is unrelenting wrath. And fourthly, hell is full. It is full. 
Who will be subjected to this penalty of eternal conscious torment in hell? According to verse 9, it is anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on his forehead or on his hand. And according to verse 11, it is the worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Well, who's that? Well, this group is set in deliberate contrast to the group that we saw last week in Revelation 14, 1 to 5. Those who worship the lamb and not the beast, who receive his mark, who have his name written on their foreheads, who follow him wherever he goes. It's described in Revelation 14, 12, this group is described in Revelation 14, 12 again as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And it's because of this deliberate contrast between the redeemed of the Lamb and the followers of the beast who were consigned to everlasting torment that I say that hell is full. You see, it's not simply the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Dahmers of the world who are consigned to eternal hell. It's not just the really, really, really bad apples who worship the beast and take its image and receive the mark of its name. It's anyone who has drunk the wine of Babylon, who un- under the world's intoxicating influence has loved money and power and sex and comfort and affluence anything more than Jesus. It is church-going soccer moms who would rather have their kids be successful and popular than that they be sanctified in Christ. It's church-going dads who care more about the bottom line of their business and their next fishing trip than they do about the kingdom. Do not suffer under the delusion that worshiping the beast and its image and receiving its mark is a conscious act. Nobody's lining up before a literal beast to be stamped with his name. It's more subtle than that. It is not usually the result of consciously rejecting Christ and choosing to worship the beast. It's just loving other things, the things of the world, more than Jesus. Anyone who does not have a true and living faith in Jesus, a faith that arises out of a heart born of the Spirit, that is being transformed by the grace and power of the Spirit, such that, according to verse 12, it actually keeps the commandments of God and its faith in Jesus Christ, is worshiping the beast and has its mark. If you do not follow the Lamb wherever He goes, you're following the beast. If you do not bear the lamb's mark, you have the beast's mark. And this immediately then excludes the majority of so-called Christian America that seems to have tacked on Jesus as an accessory to life. It is no wonder that Jesus stood before the multitudes and said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are, tell me, many. But the way is, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are, tell me, few. The followers of the Lamb are few. The followers of the beast are many. And therefore hell is chock full of nominal Christians. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John does not leave us to wonder about the application of this vision. We're not left scratching our heads asking what, what, should, what do we do with this? He says, you persevere. He tells us clearly and directly, these warnings should function as a call for the endurance of the saints who are identified both by their faith in Jesus and by their life of obedience to the revealed will of God that their faith produces. This is what a saint is in verse 12. Don't gloss over it. A saint is someone who has embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Redeemer and who follows Him as their Lord and King. It's someone who follows the Lamb wherever he goes. So mark this carefully, beloved, because this is not the definition of a Christian that most of us grew up with in our churches. 
We were taught that a Christian is someone who at any time in their life asked Jesus into their heart whether or not that profession of faith issued in the fruit of obedience. Because after all, everyone would just shrug and say, once saved, always saved, which is quoted at funerals and was used to excuse all manner of ungodliness in those who were never born again to begin with. It's not true. A faith that does not bring about the obedience of faith is a dead faith and not a saving faith. True and living and saving faith follows the Lamb, keeps the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Listen to me. Not perfectly, but purposefully and perseveringly. Do not dare soften the meaning of this text. Do not dare take away from the words of this prophecy and thereby come underneath the curse of God pronounced upon those who do such in chapter 22 and verses 18 to 19. Just out of curiosity, the the end of this book issues a curse upon those who take away parts of this revelation. What parts of revelation do you think are most tempting to tear out? Don't do it. If anyone, no matter what they claim, fails to keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus purposefully, perseveringly, though not perfectly, to the end of their days, they are not a saint and they are not a follower of the Lamb. They are a worshiper of the beast, they bear his mark on their forehead and they will suffer the everlasting torment of hell. New life matters. The Holy Spirit matters. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I am terrified of softening what the Bible makes hard. I'm terrified of blunting what the Bible makes sharp. I won't do it. This is a call to perseverance that comes on the heels of a threat of judgment. So let it rest upon you. Let it terrify you. Let it awaken you from slumber. Let it bring about the repentance of secret sins that no one else knows about. Let it save you from everlasting hell. That's the purpose of the warnings of Scripture. That's how we can immerse ourselves in the flames of hell this morning and yet it be a tremendous working of God's grace and mercy. These warnings are double-edged swords. On the one hand, they cut, they wound, they disturb, they frighten, they're meant to because at the same time they cut the other way and they heal and they awaken and they rescue and they save. So be warned And be wise. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. That they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The threat of judgment is not the only means which God uses to motivate his saints. There is also an extravagant promise of reward. So listen. God keeps us running. That's what he's doing this morning. You know, what, what's God's purpose in this morning? Why did he get me up out of bed and bring me here? It was for this. He keeps us persevering. He keeps us running the race of faith by placing the threat of hell at our heels and the hope of heaven before our eyes. That's what he's doing. Both are necessary. Both are means of grace. So a voice from heaven instructs John to write down a benediction. It's a blessing. It's the second of seven that we'll find in Revelation. Upon the one who dies in the Lord from now on. Which is not to say that those who have already died in the Lord are not blessed. But rather to encourage those of us who are still living that we may die in the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, the connection to the previous verse makes it clear. 
To die in the Lord is to keep the commandments of God and our faith in Jesus unto death. It is to follow the Lamb wherever He goes unto death. It is to pursue Christ as your soul's highest treasure and greatest delight right up to the day when your heart stops from old age or right up to the day when cancer finally consumes your body or right up to the day when someone lops off your head for confessing Christ. Whether you are a teacher in a public school or a stay-at-home mom or a salesman selling your product or a missionary in Yemen, you are an exile living in Babylon and your calling is the same. Remain faithful to Christ no matter what to the end of your days. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Keep the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus. And if you do that, you are blessed. Indeed, says the Spirit. How? What does that mean? How are you blessed? He says you will have rest from your labors and a reward for your deeds. So the struggle, the suffering, the tribulation of this age... It will one day come to an end. It will not last into the age to come. Persevere through this age of tribulation and you will enter into an eternal joy that never ends. This does not imply that the age to come is one of inactivity. Far from it. But every labor will be joy. The way that God intended it to be. No more thorns. No more thistles. No more futility. Only fruitful labor and endless joy in the age to come for those who persevere. We don't know much about eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth and what it's going to look like. We get glimpses, but even those glimpses are generally very highly symbolic. We just don't, we don't know, but we know this, it will be unimaginably glorious. Paul, who saw it, said, it's what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So this is a call to endure your providentially appointed sufferings in faith and obedience and hope for your day of rest will come and your reward will be great. Their deeds follow them. Your faith in Christ is well placed and your obedience to Christ will be fully recompensed, richly recompensed, which is an astounding thought Because it's God who's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They're not even your deeds. What an astounding picture of grace and mercy that God is going to produce good fruit in you by his willing and working and by his energy that works powerfully within you and then turn around and give you the reward for what he's done. Dennis Johnson writes, though our deeds have been done in a body defiled by sin and disabled by the curse, a body destined to be planted in the earth as a dead seed, nevertheless, the grace and power of the risen Lord transforms them into thank offerings which are pleasing to the Father. There has not been one good deed you've ever done that hasn't been tainted by sin and pride and mixed motivations. Examine your heart, you'll know it's true. But the blood of Christ sanctifies those so that God receives them as perfect and spotless offerings. And on the last day, God will look upon your works, which he himself willed and worked in and through us, and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. So let me urge you, spend time meditating upon the eternal joys of heaven. And spend time meditating upon the eternal torment of hell. Both will aid you in your perseverance. Your perseverance which is essential to your eternal salvation. Because there's no such thing as justification by death. There is only justification by faith alone. A faith that follows the Lamb wherever He goes unto death. This is what it means to die in the Lord. 
And to die in any other way is to die in sin. And that brings a destiny too terrible to bear. Would you pray with me? If the Lord has answered my prayers, there are many of you who are frightened. It's good. It would be an awful thing to have a heart that is numb to what we've just talked about. So in the midst of your fear, be encouraged. Your heart is not numb. It is not calloused. It is not dead. And in your fear, flee. Flee to Jesus. Today is still the day of grace. He will receive you. He will cleanse you. He will protect you from the wrath of God by covering you in His very own righteousness. Flee from the wrath to come and flee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Cry out to Him. Call upon His name. Ask Him to save you. To cleanse you. To give you a new heart that loves Him and wants to follow Him. Flee from the wrath to come and find your refuge, your sure and certain refuge in Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross atoned for the sins of everyone who seeks refuge in Him, whose resurrection guaranteed eternal life for all who trust in Him. He is enough. He is sufficient. And He is willing. You go to Him. Now in prayer, you go to Him. And if you need help, you want to be prayed for, I'll be here to help, to pray, to counsel. Go to Jesus. My Father, I pray that You will work out Your perfect purpose in our midst. As I prayed before, I pray again now. Let the revelation of your righteous wrath drive sinners to Christ. And then comfort them. Believing sinner, be comforted. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Your unrighteousness is cleansed by his blood. Your filthy garments are taken away and you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ has drained the cup of God's wrath for you. And now there remains for you only an everlasting cup of blessing, springs of living water which never run out. Believing sinner, be comforted. in Christ's name that I pray.